0: It and listen to it and uh, and make sure that our lives adjust to God's plans and purposes. This morning, I want to start off in just encouraging you to give. Um, the Lord says through His Word um, in Galatians that we must be cheerful givers. And this morning, as we are looking at the weather, as we are looking at our lives and the privilege of still being able to be in a free country where we can actually share the word with so many people, I want to encourage you to give to God what is due to Him. Um, For everything that is happening in your life that you would gladly give unto Him. You know, when I um, you know, each month, you know, when it gets to the end of the month, each one of us receives something from our employers and uh, to, uh, to spend our money to to the good of our purposes, and the Lord is encouraging us to also think about His contribution in our lives by giving our first fruit, that which is important to us financially. Uh, that we will give that to the Lord. And this morning, as we give unto Him, I will. I want to ask you to give cheerfully, to give out of the abundance of your heart, and to give because you love Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that this morning, even though we give. Digitally, even we give, Father God, online, we do it as a consecration to you. We give it because we love you. And we want to enhance your kingdom, but Father, we know that your kingdom is advancing because you are in it. And this morning we pray in Jesus' name that you lead us to a place where we can truly experience your abundance in our lives, but also your kingdom to flourish in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can uh, give by doing so online. You'll see that there's a link uh, on our Facebook page as well as on the YouTube channel that you are probably watching. So this morning, it's really my privilege to introduce to you um, a dear friend, a, uh, a leader, a man of God uh, that I really trust and that I know speak the Word of God with, um, yeah, with real boldness and uh, yeah, Nigel, thanks for sharing the word with us. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Good morning
1: to you. So I'm glad you could join us today. Yeah, just such a privilege to be able to bring the Word to you. We I mean, you know God speaks to us in uh, our many but to be able to stand before you and uh, to carry a burden of Scripture, it's, it's such a privilege. I just want to give thanks to God in prayer for this morning, before we begin. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the victory of We thank you that you speak to us, Father. We thank you that you've given us space to, to hear, and that you soften our hearts to receive. So Father, for all those who are hearing the word at this time, whether live or later, but I, thank you I, thank you the but I thank you that you prepared thank you that you came given and i to see But I thank you that your word will accomplish when you set up with today. just give you the glory. You just pray for your name here. It's So technical, um, have to remember to make sure that the microphone is on before you begin. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if you heard, so I'm going to pray again quickly. Father God, thank you. We thank you for this morning and for the privilege of bringing your word. Lord God, you, uh, you're so faithful. When you call us and you, uh, you give us the burden of carrying your holy word. So Father, for those who are listening, whether they're listening live now, or they're listening at another time, Father God, I thank you that you give ears to hear and that you prepare their hearts to receive. And Father, I thank you that your Your word will accomplish what you set out for it to be today. And Father, I thank you that you've, uh, you've chosen me as a vessel but I just pray that you will speak through me this morning and that it will be for your honour and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so the work today. Um, so It's it's, The Refiner's Fire. It's the title of today's sermon. And um, yeah, the inspiration for that actually came through a song. Um, and we'll we'll touch on that a bit later on as well but what it led to was uh, just really looking at scripture in a way that I hadn't done before and the particular scriptures I'm talking about is the book of Malachi so I don't know about you but for me when I think about Malachi automatically my mind goes to the well known scripture about the tithe giving up the tithe and um about robbing God. And I don't think I've ever actually really considered what else it's about. You know, I've read it, I've read the whole of the Bible more than once. But I can't actually think of a time where you know I've really sought to understand what Malachi was about and what the intention was there. So automatically it's always been about the time and the given the type, and that's been the overwhelming sort of reference to that scripture. But for the purpose of today, um, we're actually going to look through the book of Malachi, um, at least until the scripture's up to the tithe and the robbing of God. And we're going to delve into it, and we're really going to look and see, well, what is it about? What is God talking about? And what was his intention there? And so there's a lot to get through in terms of scripture, but um, I trust that you'll you'll be able to follow. So be patient and be diligent. And if you have your Bibles ready, um, I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version. So if you have that, you might find it easier to follow. But obviously, the word is the word. So we begin. I'm going to start with a reading, and the first reading is from Malachi two thirty-three, two. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking him, where is the God of justice? Behold... I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like full his sun. So the word... So, the name Malachi actually, the meaning of it is my messenger. Um, and it said it to, is a derivative or it's a, a shortened version of maybe Malachi or Malachias. And that may be interpreted as messenger of God. So, um, yeah, we see in the scripture that I read that there's a reference where God says in chapter 3-1, Behold, I send my messenger. in It's slightly poetic where Malachi, the name, means my messenger, and God is referencing sending his messenger. But it actually, um, when we look at it, particularly 3-1, um, chapter 3, verse 1, you have to think about what that's actually referencing. And if you Think about the time of Christ and what preceded him, then we know that John the Baptist prepared the way. And that's actually what 31 is referencing the coming of John the Baptist, where he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So that's actually referencing John the Baptist, and he's preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. So let's actually have a look at um, Matthew. We're going to go to Matthew 3. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 3. And as it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So, from there I want to just have a little look at um, Matthew 11 and 9 where it reads What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, i more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. You will prepare your way before you." So this is Christ speaking, and he's actually referencing Malachi, verse 3 and 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. You will prepare your way before you." So in terms of looking at Malachi as a book, we're going to delve into it and start from the beginning, from chapter 1, verse 1. But before we do that, I just want to give you a bit of a backdrop and, uh, about the discourse and give you an idea of what's happening in Malachi. So there's some speculation concerning the composition date of Malachi. However, there is sufficient evidence that suggests that the events and circumstances that take place, are contemporary to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And with respect to those books, they depict the situation where there's a remnant of the Jews who have recently returned from 70 years of exile in Babylon. And they're under Persian rule. So scripture tells us in those books that they oversaw the post-exilic reconstruction and rededication of the temple of God and through to God's service, through to God's service, the temple of God to God's service, through to the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, which occurs in Nehemiah. So as we know, the great temple of God built under King Solomon's reign, was eventually destroyed along with the walls and the houses of the city when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. So a little bit more history around that. In terms of how the uh, temple was rebuilt and how the Jews managed to return to Jerusalem, there was a decree from King Cyrus of Persia in 538 BC permitting the Jews to return so that they could rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And that decree was subsequently endorsed by King Darius in 519 BC. And the rebuilding of the temple was completed in roughly 516-515 BC. So it was 70 years from the destruction of the temple to the temple being completed. So the temple was actually destroyed by the Babylonians when they overcame um, the Jews and took them into captivity and into exile, a remnant of the Jews, and that was in 586. Roughly. So we we'll get the picture here. So in terms of Malachi and what's happening, we'll see that they, it's apparent that they rebuilt the temple of the Lord. But things are not the same. At the very least, it's not what they envisioned in line with God's promises to them as a nation. So the evidence that I was referring to to support the concomitance with Ezra and Nehemiah occurs throughout the discourse between God and his people. So through his messenger Malachi, God makes pointed reference to Israel's countenance towards him and the fulfilment of their priestly duties. And specifically, he voices his displeasure in the form of a conversation which has been described by some as satirical in its nature. So what do I mean by that? Well, Malachi as a book would be commonly categorised as one of the minor prophets, alongside books such as Hosea, Joel, Amos, and the other books which occur after Daniel in the Old Testament. So as we know, Malachi is the the final book in the Old Testament. So the term minor prophets was apparently used by St. Augustine in the 5th century AD. So in the Hebrew canon, those same books are grouped together, and they're simply referred to as the Twelve. So, we need to understand that the word minor in this sense is not assessing the importance of the books, as they're no less important, but rather the breadth of the narrative compared to the major prophets. So, when we think of prophecy, I don't know about you, but we typically think of it as a, in the form of a didactic monologue, where the prophet solely represents the voice of God to the people. In the case of Malachi, we see a more prosaic approach that depicts a conversation where God is speaking for himself, but also interprets the audience's response. So what's going on exactly? Well, we're going to read, and we're going to, from chapter one, as I said, we're going to dive into the scripture and we're really going to look at what's going on. And hopefully, my, um, my ESV study Bible breaks down the, um, the book of Malachi into what it calls disputations, um, which is helpful. So I'm, um, there's no need for me to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to follow the disputations and use that as much as a structure for how we read through Malachi. So let's read from Malachi 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And we're reading to um, verse 5. Yeah. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? I should add as well, there's a link. If you want to follow the presentation, there is a link. Um, so you can have a look at that now. And it has the scriptures that I'm reading here, if you if you would prefer to use them. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, he the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated beyond the border of Israel. Yeah, so we see here the um, the conversation between God to Ranaka. And you can see that the reference God I made to um, um, and you can see that. the reference I made with regard to the discourse and how it's it's God speaking but also responding on behalf of the people. Um, obviously God knows us and he knows exactly how we think and how we respond so he can do that without challenge so when we look at it we we see certain references in there so there's a term that's used and there's an interesting fact around it so if we look for example at from verse 4 it reads, if Eden says we are shattered, but we will build the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So, the, the term the Lord of hosts now that's actually a, a translation of um, the Hebrew translation of Lord of armies. And what it means exactly actually when God is talking about the Lord of Hosts, he's talking about the heavenly host in this case. So we know that, for example, when Christ was crucified, at hand were the heavenly hosts ready. And he could have called them at any moment. So that's what God is referencing there. And in the Old Testament, of the overall use of the term the Lord of Hosts, It occurs 43% of the time in Malachi, compared to the whole of the Old Testament. Significant? Um, Maybe not. But then we might ask ourselves, why is that? And we can speculate. And we can only speculate, because who of us knows the mind of God? However, what we can do, we can look at the situation that we're aware of. And that's that Judah as a nation was politically, economically, spiritually destitute following their, their time of exile in Babylon and their subsequent return to Jerusalem. As I said earlier, things think are not the same. And I can imagine that the presence of God And the people's experience of him as the Great I Am, was a distant memory at that time. You might say that they've they've been vanquished, violated, violated and left utterly discouraged by their circumstances. So we need to remind ourselves that what occurred with the Babylonians was actually a judgment of God. Israel's unfaithfulness, faithfulness and as a reference to that we need to go back about 200 years and to do that we need to look in Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 11 and we read I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. So the Lord had spoken this judgment 200 years before, and needless to say what the Lord speaks and what he decrees and declares is done. No matter how long it takes, you know that if God says something, and He says it will happen, He's a man of His word, and it will happen. So this situation where the judgment came upon them, yeah. this was this was told to them by God two hundred years before. So we also see a, a definite pointer that places Malachi in the area of Persian rule. So, let's have a look. So, God's decisions. So, we'll, re- we'll get back to, actually, we'll get back to the, the, um, the reference of the Persian rule in a moment. So, I just want to stick on one talking about how God makes his decisions and how they're absolute and without repentance. So in the discourse we see um, one of the things that the, the Jews were disputing with God. And from verse 2 where it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Obviously, we're seeing that at that time, they, that, as I said, the nation—they were things were not the same. They didn't have that relationship and that sense of God's presence. Something was lacking to the point where they—they they didn't feel loved by right? God. And we need to understand what was going on there. They were feeling rejected, and they were feeling as though God was preferring others over them and the reference there is to to Esau and the line of Esau being the the Edomites and they're comparing themselves to another nation and how that nation appears to be offspring in comparison to their circumstances which they're lamenting at the time but we need to understand something about, about God and how he how he is with us and how he deals with us we know that God's decisions are absolute and without repentance when he chooses one thing over another it's with such certainty that he absolutely rejects the alternative and when you see the words such as hated so he says in um, yeah in verse 2 yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I have hated it seems like a very harsh word you know, if we take it in our, our typical understanding of what hating means. But as I said, when you think about God's character and when he chooses one thing over another, it's with such certainty that he absolutely rejects the alternative. There's no shadow of turning or reticence as all His judgments are just. So let's think about it. If God had chosen differently, today he could have been referred to as the God of Labor, Bethuel, and Laban. Instead he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in accordance with the Messiah. So yeah, we're seeing that God's interpreting the people's hearts towards him. They feel that they've rejected them, God doesn't love them but we know that wasn't the case so we're going to read on So from verse 6 and this is the second disputation so let's read and we're reading from verse chapter 1 verse 6 to chapter 2 verse 9 a son honours his father and a servant his master if then I am a father where is my honour When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favour of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? for my name, will be great among the nations," says the Lord of Hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of Hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Curse be the chief who has a mower in his flock and vows in and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, o priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, To give honour to my name, said the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed. Then, because you do not lay it to heart, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread down on your faces the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way you have caused men to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, said the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So um, strong words from the Lord directed at his priests, and you know those responsible for leading the people in terms of their service and their their worship and their attitude towards God. What the priests do in the temple and how they carry out their duties is a representation of the heart of the people, and clearly, God is, um, yeah, taking them to, to task because much is expected of them, much responsibility, and therefore, therefore, the weight is upon them when God speaks. But we see clearly, as I said, things are not the same with the nation. time that they, um, they returned from exile, something changed. There was a fervor to rebuild the temple when they initially returned. There was a desire to rebuild the temple. But over the course of the years, and Malachi is uh, dated, apparently, roughly a hundred years. After the the remnant return, things have changed. The people's hearts have gone astray. And this brings me to brings to mind for me the, the books of the Bible, you know, such as things like Leviticus and Numbers, which are chock full of detailed instruction for worship and righteousness towards God. And I, I don't know about you, but over the years, many times, my eyes have glazed over reading those books and wondering why there's so much information about sacrifices and, yeah, and why they're required and what's required for the sacrifice. But the truth is that, that God is an observer of every one of those standards. And not one word was spoken in vain. So when we fall short of those standards, and God places a responsibility on us, and, and using the priest as an example, when we fall short, then God has a right to take it to times. Because he's an observer of every word that he's spoken in the instruction. None fall by the wayside. None are overlooked. So let's read on. Um, we move on to the third disputation, And for this we're going to read from verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10 through to verse 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? God the offspring. So guard yourselves. this excerpt here provides further evidence as well of what was happening and the comparison, and, as I say, the dating of the era, era of Malachi in relation to Ezra and Nehemiah. And that helps us to understand, despite the, the speculation about what it, it was referencing, the period of time that it was covering. And to help us with that, we're going to look at. Um, Just a couple of scriptures in Ezra, Nehemiah, where we see a a similar theme and a representation of what God is talking about in in Malachi. So we're going to look at firstly Ezra 9, verses 1 to 2. And we read, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, but I have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. And then, yeah, in Nehemiah, chapter 13, 23 to 27. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Noah, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So, as I said earlier, God's God's standards are His standards, and He maintains them. And, uh, the Jews are falling short. The picture's becoming clear that they have their hearts were distanced from God. And the things of going to be ordained um, and established that there was a people and a nation. They were falling by the wayside. Their heads were being turned. They were becoming complacent and thought they could do what they want. So marrying men, worshipping foreign gods, marrying women from outside of their of worshipping foreign gods, but also with regard to the marriage and the divorce, just divorcing for the purpose of a simple lack of affection towards their, their spouse. Husbands were divorcing their wives, and this, we're talking about their covenant wives, which in God's sight was just a flagrant rejection of his marriage covenant. So God was upholding that standard and letting them know that he was Lord God and nothing had changed in that sense. And as much as they felt that they could, things were different and that they could then lower their standards, God was reminding them that what he establishes doesn't change. Unless he says something changes, it doesn't change. So we're going to read on, we're going to read from now from verse, chapter 2, verse 17, and this is the fourth Disputation. So we're in Malachi again. So this is um, the scripture that we read in the beginning, and now we're reading it in a context, obviously, of uh, going through the whole Disputations. So you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like full of soap. He will sit as a refiner, and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings to the righteousness of righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker with his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me," says the Lord of Hosts." So, if we look at that a bit more closely, then we can see that in terms of the, uh, the refiner, it says, he will sit. Sorry, just before that. But who can enjoy the day of his coming? This is from uh, chapter three, verse 2. But who can enjoy the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like of sun. So, we you know that's referring to the coming of Christ. What he will represent. That he will, will come like a refining fire and, like full of soap with that purpose. So, what does that mean exactly? We need to get a bit of an illustration and some sort of definition of what, what that represents about Christ. So we need to we need to define the refrain. So I'm going to give you a process here um, about how gold is refined the process is called smelting of gold. So apparently it is thought that gold has been smelted since 6,000 BC, first done by the Babylonians in current-day Syria. Today it's a highly sophisticated process but the fundamentals for smelting gold remain the same. So in very simple terms, the first step in smelting gold is pulverising or crushing the ore. Next, the material is placed in the furnace in order to elevate the gold to above the melting point. The furnace must reach temperatures in excess of 1,000 and 64 degrees Celsius. To achieve this, the blast furnace furnaces force air into their flames. So, looking at the more modern process as well. So, once the ore is molten, chemicals such as sodium nitrate, silica, lead oxide, sulfuric acid, and nitric acid are added because gold is a noble metal and non reactive. The impurities instead bond with the chemicals. This causes them to oxidize and rise to the surface, allowing the impurities to be skimmed from the surface. So then, further chemicals can be added, causing any remaining impurities to separate, which can be chipped away once the mix has cooled. The result of smelting gold produces gold nuggets or gold door bars. The bars are large rough bars containing both gold and silver that require further refinement. Generally after smelting, the resulting gold nuggets are around 90% pure. Today, to achieve a higher purity, the nuggets may be put through the Merrill chrome process, or the Miller process, or Bow-Wool process. The Miller method uses the molten mix and can raise purity to 99.5%. The Volwell method is an electrolytic process, electrolytic process, which can achieve up to the highest purity of 99.999%. Final nuggets can then be made into more practical shapes. Commonly bullion bars. So, for today, with these highly advanced smelting methods, it is impossible to make 100% pure gold. And 99.99% or 999.999 finest gold is the purest ever made. And this is the source of this is the, uh, the bullion by post. So, I don't know if you caught the point, and I'll just remind you. So, it is thought that gold has been smelted since 6000 BC, first done by the Babylonians. So, let's just think about that. God's people the judgment that God made upon them. And the, um, yeah, the conclusion for that judgment was that God's people were going to exile into a, a nation of people, the Babylonians, for 70 years. So why was there a judgment? Well, because the people restrained from God's decrees They were turning away from God. They were worshipping other gods. They were being unfaithful. And we can look through the Bible and there's a history of unfaithfulness and repentance and God's judgment and then God's forgiveness. It's just a cycle with people. And this was no different. But God sought fit to pass a judgment that probably seemed very harsh at the time for the 70 years of exile. Do you think it was a coincidence that the, the people that supposedly invented the refining of gold, that God chose them to be the ones that overcame the Jews and took into exile? Or is God signifying his purpose in a symbolic act of judgment? Considering what we know about God's character. It's safe to say that his intentional judgment was for good, and its purpose was to refine his chosen people. So if you're not convinced by my posturing on the matter, let's return to Jeremiah chapter 9. Although This time we're going to read from slightly earlier, from verse 7. we read, Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness, because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of the captive is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of birds, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabiting. So we see there that God is actually referenced that his intention is to refine them. And that judgment upon them is that of an act of love and a representation of God's character and what he does with his people. They were so far removed in their attitude towards him and what God had established over the centuries with his people. Their hearts had gone astray. They were worshiping other gods. They were marrying foreign him. For him they were divorcing frivolously. So this is obviously the time before what, what's happening in the this was the time before the judgment. Because as I said, there's a cycle, there's a pattern. And the Jews have um, yeah, historically disappointed God in terms of their actions. And God has been patient and he's brought back on many occasions. But this time yeah, there needed to be a harsh judgment. And it's just amazing that as I say, the people that God chose, were the people who were inventors of refining gold. Um, For me, that's symbolic. That God uses people as such, that they need to refine them. So he sent them to be refined for 70 years in exile. So let's read on. The other reference about um, Christ's coming and his purpose and what he's gonna do was the of soap. So let's read a little bit about that, what is full of soap. So a fuller was someone who cleaned and thickened to make it full, freshly woven cloth, usually wool. The process involved cleaning, bleaching, wetting, and beating the fibres to a consistent and desirable condition. Fuller's earth was a variety of clay that was used to scour and cleanse the cloth. Fuller's soap was an alkali made from the plant ashes, which was also used to clean and form new cloth. Since fullers required plenty of running water, along with the natural substances described, a fuller's field was a place where all were available for the fullers to conduct their profession. So I'm just going to read from Psalm 51 7, just to give us... Um, just to give us a reference for that. So Psalm fifty one. So I haven't marked it in my Bible. In one so Psalm fifty one seven and this is a Psalm of David. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So we see here the pointed reference, and the reference that um, David is speaking about, the washing and the whiter than snow, is in reference to Christ and what Christ was to do. But you see here, that process that I described, it's it's not an easy process, it's, it's harsh, you know? The wetting and the beating of fibres to a consistent and desirable condition. When we think about, you know, our lives and the things that, that we go through think we experience, um, and what God wants to do with us, you look at the refining process. The heat that you have to go through in a furnace, it's not an easy thing. Look at how God chose to discipline the Jews for their unfaithfulness with the 70 years of exile in Babylon until they, they came out. And even after that, they were under Persian rule. can be difficult. Removing impurities. And the washing the washing of us and making us wear brighter than snow is not an easy process. So there are two more disputations, but I'm not going to go into those. I'm going to move towards the conclusion. So in response to what we looked at and what's been going on in, uh, in Malachi. So you say, how does this apply to us so far removed from the fifth century BC? And the response is, well, did Christ not come for all of us, not just the Levitical priesthood? So then you say, But we're not required to offer sacrifices as the priests did in the temple. And the response would be: Well, are we not called to be living sacrifices before God, wholly acceptable and acceptable in His sight? So let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, like the Jews in Malachi, we've been known to come to God with tarnished offerings. And when we give only the remnants of our energy and our time after we've exhausted ourselves with numerous priorities throughout the day, we dishonor him. Or when our heads are maybe turned by the unrighteous who prosper in their way, and we wonder why things are going so well for them and us who serve the Lord are struggling. We question. So, you've heard, I'm sure, the saying, caught between a rock and a hard place. So, you might say, as an alternative analogy, that we're caught between a furnace and a pit of fire. Choose Christ, and you will be tried by fire until the impurities are removed. Reject Him, and your destination is an eternal. Fire, in which there is no respite. God will be on it. One way or another, we're all going to burn because our God is an all-consuming fire. Therefore, fire is inevitable. There's no escape. That's not to say that our God isn't loving. I'm sure we can all testify of, of the of God, But his character is his character. And the things that he demands of us, and he requires of us, sometimes um, require us a lot of suffering. A lot of patience, a lot of endurance and perseverance. But we know those things build character. And God is about that business, building character and developing his people and making them pure gold. And that's not to say that once we gone through the refining process that we're perfect, we certainly You know, we saw with the the nation of Judah, the remnant of the nation of Judah after they came out of exile for seventy years, their hearts turned again. You know, from a period where they were on fire for God to keep to rebuild the temple. They lost that passion again. Their hearts strayed. And we're no different. You know, we have time to go on fire for God and we feel close and that things go well, God is refining sort of us in, in many areas, but over time we can become discouraged and our hearts can stray. But God is patient and He's able to fulfill those things that He demands or what He desires for us. So I just want to finish now with a word of warning and a word of hope. This is by John Piper. He is a refiner's fire, and that makes all the difference. A refiner's fire does not destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like the fire of an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines, it purifies, it melts down the bar of silver or gold, separates out the impurities that ruin its value, burns them up, and leaves the silver and gold intact. He is like a refiner's fire. It does save fire, and therefore purity and holiness will always be a dreadful thing. There will always be a cup of fear and trembling in the process of becoming pure. We learn it from the time we are little children, never play with fire, and it's a good lesson. Therefore, Christianity is never a plaything, and the passion for purity is never flippant. He is like fire, and fire is serious. You don't fool around with it. But it does say he is like a refinement fire. And therefore, this is not merely a word of warning, but a tremendous word of hope. The furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement, never for destruction. So I just want to conclude in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for... Yeah, just your faithfulness in speaking to us today, and Father. I thank you that you are a God who refines. Father, we thank you that you're so patient with us and that you are, you allow us to go through things which may seem harsh at times, and yeah, sometimes it does feel like we're in a in a fire furnace. And we're going to we're going to be consumed. The father, we know it's not your, your purpose to consume us, but to purify us. Amen. Yeah, you know, to to make us like your God. So Father, help us just to surrender ourselves to them. To draw near to you, so that you may draw near to us. For who you are cannot be denied. You are an all consuming fire. And as I said, fire is inevitable. So, Lord God, we just, um, yeah, we just commend to ourselves to you today. And uh, let's just pray, Father God, that those who have heard your word today, who are just received it as it was intended. Amen. Uh, we're just aligned. And we can align ourselves with your heart for us. And allow ourselves to be purified by your God. As we you. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, Be we submit in Jesus' Christ's name. Amen. And at the beginning, I said that the sermon was inspired by a song. So, there's a link to that, to the song. You want to have a listen to that and get some relevance to how the sermon came about. Um, Also, if you're you're in need of any ministry, please please do get in touch. There's also a link reference there for, for contacting us if you need some ministry. So, please, if you need to respond. Um, we'll we'll be very happy very much when I hear from you but yes anyway thank you for listening Um, enjoy the rest of your day and uh, be
0: blessed Amen